Welcome to The Wrap-Up, the podcast that gives you an insider's look at the top stories in Hollywood. I'm your host, Sharon Waxman, the founder and editor-in-chief of The Wrap, and happy to welcome back my co-host, The Wrap's assistant managing editor, Adam Chitwood. Welcome, Adam. Hello. Thank you for joining us from uh, sunny Las Vegas and CinemaCon. Have you gotten any sleep? It's been a, a very busy CinemaCon this year. It's been a very busy CinemaCon after two very sleepy years. I haven't even been here in two years, three years, I guess now. Um, yeah, uh, you know, you'll sleep's not not big on the agenda, but lots of great movies and um, lots of fun stuff going on. We'll talk about it. We will uh, be talking on Joe John Fian is the CEO and president of the National Association of Theater Owners. That's all the people who own exhibition across the country. And he will be telling us about the state of going to the movies. He will also tell us what happened with Olivia Wilde when she was served custody papers by her ex, Jason Sudeikis, right in the middle of her onstage presentation. Yes, uh, I'm really looking forward to that conversation. Uh, we are also about to welcome the show Hollywood icon Henry Winkler to talk about the new season of HBO's Barry, uh, which I cannot wait for that conversation. Yeah, me too. Very excited to talk to him. Uh, you are you are that show's biggest fan, which you know, <laughs> I, 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 no I, I might, might be. Yeah, I'm I'm lower on the on the list, but I love the show too. Yeah, uh, it's incredible. Uh, and I as as we discussed with Henry Winkler, I think this is the best season yet. Um, but before we get to that, we have uh, the latest Hollywood headlines to jump into, including Elon Musk striking a deal to buy Twitter. Uh, mm -hmm. On Monday, Twitter's a board approved Musk's offer to buy the company for roughly $44 billion. The deal should close at some point this year, uh, of course, subject to approval by current stockholders and regulators. And now Musk wants to take the company private. Uh, and he said he's buying it to preserve free speech. Not everyone is buying that. Sharon, you wrote about it in a wonderful column this week. Um, oh, thanks. What's what's going on here? Yeah, well, I think the whole thing is very much through the looking glass and takes us into territory that we really have not encountered before. So, you know, look, a single person, Elon Musk, who is currently the richest person in the world, coming up with $44 billion that he can borrow, that he can leverage his, his Tesla stock and his other assets to buy, uh, to borrow, sorry, to be able to buy Twitter after making this, you know, approach as a, essentially a hostile takeover to the platform that he uses a lot all the time himself and has used it. He's been gotten in trouble with the SEC for tweeting about stuff that changed the Tesla stock price, et cetera, et cetera. But the idea that, uh, that a deal like that can happen, and it happened over a weekend, is very new territory. And then the other piece of it that, and this is what I wrote in my wax word, is it's very uh, discomforting to think about a single person owning a platform where something like, I believe there's like 300 million subscribers in the United States. Of course, you can't access all of them at any one time because it goes by account. But it is a level of power, a media power in the hands of, of an individual who is unelected, who is private, who is, if he takes company private, has no accountability whatsoever, is very disturbing to think about. And I don't care what a nice guy he is. I don't care what a cool guy he is, what an innovative guy he is, how, how entertaining he is. It is not a good idea in a democracy to put media in the, in, that, of that sort in the hands of 
one person. When I say of that sort, what I mean is social media, because we don't regulate social media at all from, as a public policy matter. We rely on the companies to regulate themselves. And they finally did, when it comes to Facebook and Twitter, in kicking Donald Trump off the platform who spread, as we all know, lies and misinformation. But and insulting and invective. And we know what accessible Twitter can be. We also know how great Twitter can be when somebody's spreading a, a wonderful story about somebody in need of something and, and folks step up. It can be a great platform. It is probably almost certainly an under-monetized asset, which is why um, the Twitter board caved in two seconds to an offer that was well under the high of where the stock was in the last 12 months. But I'm just saying we have laws that say you cannot own a monopoly of television stations and newspapers at the same time. We don't have any kind of laws that regulate social media. I think that's nuts. And now we're going to have a single guy who answers to no one but himself and maybe his mother, um, and not even, in charge of this thing. And, you know, I, I, it's, it, we should be friggin' paying attention to this. It's not good. Yeah, I, I agree. And also, Twitter is where a lot of people get their news. So to then open the floodgates in the name of, quote-unquote, free speech, uh, it's dangerous. So, I, you know, this is... And we already have essentially a single guy who's in control of Facebook because Mark Zuckerberg is a controlling shareholder of Facebook, which is a public company. And he has not done a very creditable job of moderating content or all of that. I mean, Jack Dorsey, who was the CEO of Twitter and co-founder, did seem to take more seriously the responsibility of moderating speech on Twitter. Uh, Who knows what Elon Musk wants to do? And the other thing that I wrote in that piece, which is increasingly how I feel, is that there, I feel like we're almost like pawns on some chessboard and these tech titans are kind of like running the boards. There's yeah. like a dozen guys, all guys, of course, all white, of course, who are totally unelected, who are now so rich, so vastly more rich than everybody else. Like even here in Hollywood, like these companies, we did a story recently that was like, one Apple equals 11 Disney's just as a way of like conceptualizing how big tech has become. And they now have the power to do pretty much whatever they want. I'm not sure that that is sustainable as a democracy. That's how I feel about it. I agree. That was just one headline, guys. We got a whole show to do. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Well, changing gears to another massive headline of the week. Uh, We're moving on to the biggest trial in Hollywood, which is taking place in Fairfax, Virginia, where you may have heard Johnny Depp is suing his ex-wife, Amber Heard, for defamation. She is also countersuing for defamation. Uh, This trial has been full of bombshells and headlines left and right, uh, including an agent for CAA, Christian Carino, who said on the stand on Wednesday that Depp lost his uh, role in Pirates of the Caribbean 6 over the quote-unquote distraction of his legal battles with Heard. Uh, LAPD officers have also been on the stand. A clinical and forensic psychologist hired by Depp's team has been on the stand. Um, and that psychologist said he believes uh, Heard has borderline personality disorder. Right. Uh, for the record, we haven't gotten to Heard's team's case yet. This has just been Johnny Depp's case. Uh, right. So her team has only been able to cross-examine, uh, not to bring forward their own w- witnesses yet. 
which I imagine when that happens, that will be yeah, its own slurry of headlines. Uh, but this is, the, you know, surely the biggest celebrity trial in years. Yeah. Um, and it's ugly and it's uh, not something we want to know about our cinematic heroes. Right. And they both look terrible. Johnny Depp physically looks terrible, but just, you know, spilling all the stuff that people don't want to know. I, I mean, we'll spend time on it because I think it is of interest to our readers. And of course, it's, it's not like news news, but it's the kind of train wreck you kind of can't, you know, yank your eyes away from. But Ben Svetke wrote a really great column of just having observed the trial and sort of thinking about it. And how this reflects on sort of the end of celebrity, the end of movie stardom, which I, I really recommend to our listeners to go find and read. It's, um, it's basically that's the headline that the Johnny Depp trial is the end of celebrity with, with a little help from Will Smith. Because, you know, movie stardom was always supposed to be about mystique and all the things that you want to know about the private lives of those people you idolize up on screen but don't know. And now they're way down in the dirt and spilling things that when we find out what their lives are really like and cocaine and pills and, you know, bottles of alcohol and severed fingers and poop in the bed. These are all just headlines. If you've missed them, you can look them up. But really, that's what I just told you is about what you're going to want to know about this sorted stuff um, is going to mean the end of what, you know, whatever we started in the 90s, right, the age of celebrity and paparazzi and TMZ and all of that. This is where it ends, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I, I keep thinking back to The Truman Show as as a film before its time yeah. where, you know, we're all just living our lives in public now, and that includes celebrities. It's become yeah. almost impossible for them to carefully curate their image, try as they might. Um, I mean, I would be curious to find out how much money Tom Cruise spends to keep his life as private as possible. And even then, it's not entirely possible well here um, you have the opposite case that johnny depp is spending a fortune to make his private life public right exactly so that that thing is that they he, there is now the engine of all of these revelations he's it's not uh, you know it's not tmz who's digging it through his garbage he's just putting it all out there including the audio and the cell phone conversations and the, all the texts and everything so um by by all means Please, uh, when you read the story, please do comment on it because I would be super curious to hear what our listeners think about this. Yes. Anyway, for our last headline and before we speak to Henry Winkler, let's talk about CNN Plus, which since our last pod was shut down after being available for less than one month. Reliable Sources host Brian Stelter, who had a show on CNN Plus, addressed its abrupt closure, saying it was doomed quote, was doomed because of the timing of a merger and clashing streaming strategies, uh, close quote. Um, and in fact, Warner Brothers Discovery, which whose merger came through literally two weeks after the launch of Discovery Plus, which was conceived of and resourced and planned and launched under completely other leadership. Um, they said they had, they said they had other plans, other strategies around streaming, but also we know that the, it did, the launch hadn't gone very well, but what do you think, Adam? It's so unusual to see something this ambitious launch and then just have the, the plug pulled so abruptly and quickly. 
Yeah, I mean, I think a couple of things at play here. Number one, I don't like why did anyone need CNN Plus? Uh, it felt <laughs> just kind of unnecessary to me. Um, but number two, you know, you had this kind of orphan child, uh, you know, Jeff Zucker was gone. You had all these people who had kind of shepherded this project were gone. Then the people left, rushed it out right before the merger happened. And then Discovery comes in and says, we don't want this. Take it off. Pull it yeah. down. Uh, so really unique, you know, series of events that led to this, you know, Who'd have thought anything would last shorter than Quibi? But uh, here we are. <laughs> Just a good point. <laughs> Poor old Quibi. It's yeah. going to be the punchline forever and ever. Yeah. Um, it was, uh, it, again, it seems to me a move by that, that Jason Kylar, who was the CEO, who was on his way out uh, and is there, I don't know, maybe a few more weeks, uh, felt somehow the need to rush it out two weeks before another entire set of leadership was coming in with a different strategy, different priorities. I don't know why, I don't know why he did that. I'm not sure what, what point he was trying to prove. And if maybe if it took off, uh, there might've been a different outcome, but it didn't. I think it got like tens of thousands. They had like a hundred thousand or so subscribers, which is not the kind of um, uptake you want to see if you're trying to get something to scale. Yeah, I mean, who wants more news right now, I think, is the Pretty is part of it. Like, you know, yeah, I mean, as somebody who's launched a, a news company, I mean, uh, my career from day one is be essential. Like, you have to give people yeah. something that is essential to their daily lives because there's so much choice out there. Why the heck should they be showing up for you? So and that's obviously was not their credo. And R-I-P-C-N, all of those letters. Yes, for sure. CNN uh, Plus, not CNN. <laughs> yes, yes. Sorry. Uh, so next up, uh, it's time for the wax on, wax off portion of the show where Sharon gives her thoughts on her favorite person or moment of the week. Sharon, the floor is yours. Why, thank you. My wax on this week is going to be Olivia Wilde. The director and actress was on stage at CinemaCon, the annual movie theatrical uh, trade, trade show. She was presenting... Uh, the trailer for her new movie, which she directed and she stars in, which is called, I never seem to remember the name of the movie. Sorry. Don't worry, uh, darling. Don't worry, darling. I want to say sorry. Don't worry, darling. By the way, it looks really good. But she'd barely been up on the stage in front of about 3,000 people in this huge darkened auditorium when somebody walks up to the edge of the stage and hands her an envelope, which she took, a big manila envelope, like 8 by 11. She opened it. She looked inside. She did not react. She said, oh, I know what this is. And then she stood there and she held the envelope for a while. Everybody was wondering what it was. It clearly was not a prop. It was not part of the show. We found out later that it was custody papers being served to her by her ex-boyfriend, I guess, Jason Sudeikis, with whom she has two children. Olivia, you are my wax on. You showed poise. You showed professionalism. You did not crack for a second. You didn't miss a beat. And you did an amazing job uh, under incredible pressure and having basically a flaming arrow shot at you in front of this huge room of, of strangers and you presented your film, and your film looks great. So consequently, my wax off is Jason Sudeikis, who previously up to now, I thought was a super nice guy, and Ted Lasso incarnate. Um, I got a big problem with you, dude. What were you thinking? If you do the math, and we have done the math, it seems impossible for you to not have known that this was going to be served to your ex, who we know you are upset about is dating Harry Styles. 
Note to self, I never know who is dating anybody, but I happen to know that one. And Harry Styles is in Olivia's new movie. And I also don't care who she's dating. Good for her. Good for him. And I am sorry that it did not work out for the two of you. This is not going to look good for you. Your whole brand is I am a nice guy. This is not what nice guys do. This is not a class act. And this is not something that you are credibly denying because almost nobody knew that Olivia Wilde was appearing at CinemaCon. And it stands to reason that she might have let you know for custody or other reasons where she was going to be. And if you needed to track her down and serve her, you could have done it backstage as she was leaving the stage, if she was avoiding service and just shown more respect to your ex and the mother of your children. That's my wax off. That's it for wax on wax off. Next up, we're diving into this week's feature segments, beginning with an interview with a TV legend. It's been nearly three years since Barry was on the air, uh, but Bill Hader's HBO series is back and better than ever for its third season. We are delighted to be joined now by the legendary Henry Winkler, who plays acting teacher Gene Cousineau, and who is so darn good on the show that he won an Emmy for his performance. Mr. Winkler, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. And would you call me Henry? Henry. Got it. I'm I'm just going to call you Mr. Cousineau. You, You know what? I answer to that, too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. We well, we are loving the season, right, Adam? Yes. Uh it's incredible. I I I told Bill Hader I think it's the best season yet. Um I've seen the first well, season. I, I will tell you not um I will honestly say my professional career started June thirtieth, nineteen seventy. I was a member of the Yale Repertory Theater. I got a hundred and seventy-three dollars a week. From oh that moment until sitting in this chair, this season is the most intense work I have ever done hmm. in my entire professional career. What's well, a good place to start? Why? First of all, because, you know, the first year um, there was Gene and, and all my class and my wonderful friends and Then there was the second year and we read it and I said, can I have a meeting with you, Alec and Bill? And they said, sure. And I said, I was so, I said, look, I, I'm not complaining. I am grateful, but I don't recognize this character from just last year, from just like over over here, you Hmm. could call this guy, Bob. Hmm. And they said, we understand Hmm. bottom line we will not repeat ourselves. Mm-hmm. So these two unbelievably creative men push the limit. They also have a rule. There are no assholes either behind or in front of the camera and they keep to that. So they have a, a, a flying wedge of human beings whose only purpose is to make sure their vision is, uh, is met. And then inside that structure comes the freedom for each of us to be whatever level of artist um, we've achieved. Well, let's talk. Um, 
Adam, you want to go or you want me to go? Well, yeah, I, I just had a question because I know that you guys were like a week away from filming season three when the pandemic oh happened. God. And I know Bill said that they then, you know, they went and started writing season four and then they went back and reworked the scripts for season three. So how did that table read compare to when you finally got on set? Hmm. You know, was there much change in the direction of your character or what was going on there? And what was that experience? Well, of getting you know what it was? It was refined um, for the third season. Remember, we only read two scripts. Yeah. yeah. There was a, a lunch, you know, those um, those aluminum pans. <laughs> with uh, with a, a studio lunch in it and everybody was reaching in with their hands. The very next day we came to read the next two scripts and they said, you're gonna go home for eight weeks. Three years later. Oh my God. <laughs> oh my God. Well, it, I was it, gonna it was... walk it back and, and ask when you read the character of Jean Cousineau. Originally? Um, originally yeah um what did you what did you think let's start with that and then let's talk about how you conceive of him for this season originally i the first thing i thought was you know they asked me um you're on a short list would you come in and audition it's hbo it's bill Hader. I said, is Dustin Hoffman on that short? Because <laughs> if he is, I'm not going in because he's an Academy Award winner. I don't have a shot. They said, no, he's not. I said, okay. But the first thing, without any hyperbole, it was unbelievably written. It was, it was like amazing on the page. Mm-hmm. Then I auditioned and I made Bill Hader laugh. He was the only one in the room. Alec Berg did, was not there. Bill Hader then called me and said, Hey, I wrote two scenes last night. You want to come in and play? Oh, and God. the two scenes he wrote that he sent me through email were, again, extraordinary. So the writing, the level of writing, the level of commitment to the writing, the producing, their directing, and then of course Bill starring, acting with you, your your acting partner. It's I sometimes I have to pinch myself that I am a member of this family. Well, it's what a I knew. Like, well, yeah. I'm so sorry. I just. What no, I knew not- is that I never wanted to be um, the cast member that says, hey, you know what? Leave your badge on my desk. Go take a five-day vacation. And then I close the blinds. I never wanted to do that. <laughs> That's not in the script. No. No. <laughs> well, what's so unusual, I think why... Um, Adam and I, who have not really had enough time to discuss this, are both, we have very different tastes, but we're both crazy obsessive about Barry, is that Bill uh, does this amazing job of writing a comedy that is horrifically, horrific in all of its (laughs) ethics and values, and it's so subversive. And how does he get to be funny at the same time? 
Um, I mean, we have thrown our arms around a lot of the characters on the show. We put um, NoHo Hank on the cover of our magazine. We loved him so much. Like, what a revelation, this actor. Um, so what's your take on this season as it gets darker and darker? It's pretty dark. It was already dark. You know what you, you well, this year I, I, I attached a, a flashlight to my forehead in order to see where we were going. Yeah. Like, yeah. Wow. It was dark in there. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, it, he, he is, Bill is inherently funny. Instantly funny. So as dark as he understands or as complicated as he understands the plot to be, the characters, uh, trajectory, each one of them to be, sometimes it just, it's so dark it gets funny. Or the actors are funny and it just comes out. And then he modulates the humor. You know, um, how, how does that work on the set? So how does that work on the set? You come, okay. you know, your lines. Give us. A Did minute. you see? Well, that that's an interesting thing, Sharon. I swear to you that, you know, I um, am. I, I learn my lines at home and I think I've got a handle on it and I come in and I'm ready to to do what I pretty I'm pretty sure about where we, this is should go. And Bill or Alec take you to the left. I mean, I, and I never thought of going there. And then you just, your job is to say yes, and then figure out in your mind and emotion, how do you get where they want you to be? That's the, the, the jigsaw puzzle. It's like you're putting a jigsaw puzzle together and all the pieces are blue, the <laughs> shades. So, so give us give us an example. Okay, did you see the scene? Uh, you see, now I don't know if I can talk about this yet. So, because it, it hasn't aired and they're so strict. Um, <clears throat> I'm in my house and my agent is sitting on my bed. Mm -hmm. Did you see that? Not yet, but that's yet. okay. As long as it doesn't kill the plot of the whole season, it's fine. Right. <sighs> Easy for you to say. <laughs> um, I have an attack on um, what I think is funny. I'm, uh, I'm woken out of a deep sleep by uh, somebody uh, who shouldn't be there, but I know very well. And I'm, I can't get it through my head that they're there. What I thought was funny and my attack and Bill reeled it in until it was so tiny hmm. and yet so much more funny. Hmm. So is that helpful then? I mean, I know Bill is a cinephile. He's obsessed with classic films. He loves directing. Is it helpful to have him as the director then uh, for a lot of those? Well, movies? it is because he's so good at it. He's so thoughtful about it. He's generous about it. He's generous as an acting partner. 
if you make him laugh in a scene, you will literally see his shoulders bouncing, <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah, it's very helpful. They're, they're both uh, terrific and, and respectful. So that you're the, the search then, you're not embarrassed that you didn't get it on the first time but rather open to wanting to get it on the second time. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'd like to ask, who did you draw on to, to create Jean Cousineau? Cause is it, is it some exaggerated version of an acting teacher, you know, or of a, I, I'm going to say not, he's not washed up, but he's, he never became a big star. You just must know so many people. But you know, there are whose so journeys many, were unexpe unexpected. Yeah, there are so many teachers who tried and never got where they wanted to go. So if right. you can't do it, you teach it. Um, I had fourteen teachers. Hmm. There were notes that Alex's wife took uh, in class. And they based a lot of Jean Cousineau on her notes. Hmm. And he, uh, this particular teacher, you know, when you are, um, when you're learning or you're, you're taking class, you are, uh, you have other jobs or many jobs in order to pay either for food or your acting class. Right. Right. And this particular acting teacher um, I think made it clear that he wanted the class to buy his original paintings. Oh my God. They didn't have enough money. Right. In their life. Right. What, what <laughs> insanity is that? I'm curious. But that's, on that, but that's on the page. And so that when you have to like bring him to life, where, where are you going? Like who you, uh, you know what I, I have to say that um, uh, it is, I mean, it, it is true. And I, I've said it before. I, I stopped and I turned to Bill and I said, am I playing an asshole? And he went, yeah. Went, oh. Because it's, you know, you can find the humanity. It's my job to find the humanity. And it was, and they, this is how open they were. Um, as a team in the beginning, they said, okay, we will go from complete idiot and go with Henry and, you know, have it go between uh, the yellow and danger red. I went, yeah, we can do that. I, the guy could be that. And that's how Gene um, got to be... Uh, for my money so rich well in this season it's really interesting because there's a gene has to reckon with his past it, it really kind of brings up issues that he you know was an asshole was a terror in his past and he has to confront some people who he worked with and who he was terrible to was that interesting for you to explore like just yet another facet of this character you know it it, it was it is um because you know, it's about redemption. The, I guess the overall umbrella for this uh, this season is redemption. And to admit 
for my character to even admit that possibly I was out of line is already uh, a tremendous move forward. And then to figure out how to make amends because it, it never entered his mind before hmm. is, um, uh, is another uh, layer. You know, it um, the twists and turns this year, and I, I'm so sorry that we we can't talk about it so fully, you know, because the, I, there are guards in my house <laughs> when, I, when I do an interview <laughs> standing there. Well, to give us a sense, uh, are you still standing at the end of the season? It is a question I ask at the beginning of every season. I, <laughs> I call up Bill and I said, Bill, I, am I still alive? <laughs> yeah, fair <laughs> question, right? And at the moment, I am. Oh, great. That's good to know. But you never know. <laughs> you really never know. Yeah. No. I Have mean, you told you much about season four yeah. yet? I know there that's are, why I also, uh, I am uh, Bill Hader's personal um, a snack man. You oh, know, I am craft service. Good Bill. move. <laughs> what, is he, what is he like for craft services? You know what? I don't know. Because I <laughs> eat it with my mouth. I never saw anything like it. There is some kind of Ezekiel bread. Oh yeah, with, with 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 things growing from it, and then there are bananas on it, and then there is something else like drizzled. Honey is a snack that I would have to be desperate. That's pretty good, actually. <laughs> well, I mean, you're such a delight to to watch, and you know, we're going to be watching every episode as it comes down, and we may see you again at the Emmys next year. Who? Or this oh, year, this year. I, meant, I was going to see you again. This year, yeah, yeah. Podcast. That's the last time I think I saw you in person was at the Emmys, and I and yeah. I think you you had won that year. I did. Yeah. I did. So yeah. that was I, really. I usually fun. wear it like a, a necklace. Like a necklace, which is yeah. a good idea. It's a little just heavy. A little but yeah. heavy. It yeah. draws yeah. my head down. I can't yeah. look in the camera. Well, what a great character! What Thanks. what fun you seem but to be if having you with it. Too, would you let me know? Uh, what you think as we get closer to the end of season yes. three? Yes. Adam and I will put our heads together and we'll we'll tell you exactly okay. what, what we think. We'll probably revisit it on this podcast because we talk about stuff we love. So okay. there That's you go. Deal. Thanks for being here, Henry Winkler. Thank you for inviting God me. God bless. Thank you so much. And to have a safe flight. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Sharon, I've been seeing the team's excellent reporting from CinemaCon. You are there, as we mentioned before. What's it been like on the floor? Yeah, it's been really interesting. It's quite full. There's lots and lots of good movies coming. Guess what? You've got Avatar 2 at the end of the year. You've got Top Gun coming now. You've got Doctor Strange uh, the, this weekend. You guys out there like Doctor Strange. I don't get it, but that doesn't matter. There's a really funny movie about um, two guys falling in love called Bros. That looks great. Um, there's, uh, some really serious movies coming out, actually character driven, uh, Olivia Wilde movie, which I mentioned, um, don't worry, darling is really uh, like a funny and thrill thriller, funny thriller. Uh, so anyway, 
there's a lot of good movies coming and I think we'll, what it's a big test of whether people will come back to movie theaters after two years of ruin and horror <laughs> for the, for right. the industry. If you're, if you're, if you're in it as a business, it's been friggin horrible. So yep. honestly, that's what this week was all about. And the movies are there. Let's make sure they sweep up the theaters and make the theaters look all nice. And maybe people will come back. Well, and for a further deep dive into that, you sat down with John Fithian, uh, CEO of the National Association of Theater Owners. Yes, I did. And the fun thing is, John and I have known each other for many years, and I have been arguing that that theatrical is dying for many years, and I have been arguing that day and date uh, is uh, something that is inevitable because the theater owners have been fighting to keep streaming away from their theatrical windows so they could have a free and clear either three months or eight weeks to get their movies out in theaters and get all as, as much money from the box office as they, as they could. The pandemic ended all of that. So we actually had some agreement on some things for the first time in a long time. John and I are usually arguing. <laughs> well, let's uh, take a listen to that conversation now. John Fithian is the president and CEO of the National Association of Theater Owners, one of the toughest jobs in the past two years of pandemic. But now we are here at the annual gathering of theatrical exhibitors in Las Vegas. Welcome, John, to the Thank you, Sharon. Glad to be here. Yeah. Um, early morning, you, you, you fit us in, in your crazy day. Um, so you said uh, in, in many of the uh, times you've addressed the crowd, you've said we're back. And that seems to be a big message. Uh, meaning movie theaters are back. Why Why do you say that? Well, it's been a couple of really dark years, right? This pandemic was something we had never encountered before, uh, but the sense we're getting in walking the hallways with 3,000 theater owners and movie studios and everybody who's involved in this business is a real uh, high level of enthusiasm for what's about to come. And that's only been confirmed by what we're seeing on the big screen uh, in the Coliseum here at Caesars Palace. We're seeing an array of film supply from our distributor friends that is uh, extensive, exciting, diverse. Um, and we just haven't had that. We had two problems during the pandemic. We had the fear of safety in cinemas and we had the lack of movies that appealed to people of all demographics. Mm -hmm. And both of those are back now. So you think people are no longer afraid to go to movie theaters? Oh, absolutely. If you look at NRG's consumer data on uh, feeling uh, safe about coming back to cinemas, that was down in, in the 50 to below 50s, you know, earlier in the pandemic. And we're way up in the high 80s now and climbing every day. Mm -hmm. So the data shows that the consumers are ready to come back. Uh, they know that it's a safe experience. Um, but the other elements back too, which are the movies. I mean, we had... We had pockets that work. Spider-Man came out in December and did fantastic. Third mm -hmm. biggest domestic grocer of all time. And then we hit January and February and just didn't have very many movies, right? But the slate for May and June and July is one of the strongest slates we've ever seen. Uh, we, we what are some of your favorite movies that you're, you're seeing? Oh, that, that's always difficult for me, right? You're allowed to like movies. Well, that... I mean, they're, they're, a, they're just a string of blockbusters that are coming. Um, you know, we're seeing Top Gun here today. Yeah, that's first time exciting. the movie's ever been shown anywhere, being shown here before it's shown at Comic. And there was a really big 
good response to Dr. Strange. Dr. Strange response was huge. Uh, you know, we end up the year with Avatar and we saw some exclusive footage from that yesterday. 10 whole seconds. That was amazing. Um, it's, it's a brand new trailer. <laughs> They're going to release that trailer only in cinemas right. first along with Dr. Strange. Um, mm -hmm. And look, Avatar is going to be the movie released in the in the best array of technological choices ever. That movie will completely demonstrate the best way to see a movie in the cinema in ways you just can't replicate it in the home. But in between those, we got Family Fair. You know, the Minion stuff looks fantastic. Um, we've got movies that appeal to older audiences. I'm really looking forward to see how Downton Abbey uh, works because we didn't have much content that worked for older audiences during the pandemic. We've got some really good uh, people say, you know, it's only about the blockbusters. And well, blockbusters that was about to ask key, you. But yeah, I was going to ask you. So that that is and that is the lead story uh, on the wrap that uh, Jeremy Fuster, our, our box office reporter, wrote today, which is, is this is this more than a blockbuster business? And maybe it's enough if it's a blockbuster business, because that's where most of the money has been made anyway, theatrically for the big studios. But um, it, it does make it does feel very one note. You know, for so if, every time you'll have a Spider-Man, it's going to do great. Well, you're going to get a Spider-Man like once every two years, if you're lucky. That kind, well, that kind of blockbusters. Thinking. You know, gigantic hero movies are essential to the business model, right? Yeah. Because so many people in all four quadrants like to see those movies. But the and and we knew we were getting the blockbusters this summer. What our members are learning this week here at CinemaCon is that we're also getting an array of other types of content movies that appeal to all types of demographics. I mean, the, the stuff on Elvis from Baz Luhrmann looks absolutely fantastic. Yeah, that does look great. Olivia Wilde's picture is going to seriously outperform people's expectations. Mm -hmm. That looks amazing. Um, you got uh, Steven Spielberg's semiotic biographical picture, which looks fantastic, but it's not the typical gigantic Spielberg film, but mm -hmm. yet it's quality and will really do well and appeal to older audience as well. So there's a, there's an array of product that we're seeing on the screen. Our members, you know, a thousand different theater companies and a whole bunch of theater managers, they came here knowing that they were going to see the blockbusters. They mm -hmm. knew that they were going to see Top Gun. They knew pieces of Dr. Strange were going to be cool. They knew Minions and that kind of movie was going to be here. What they're what they're telling me they're really encouraged by is the other stuff they're seeing on screen. Of course, it's great to get fired up about Doctor Strange, right? Big, huge blockbuster going to work really well. But when they see stuff like Elvis and when they see, see stuff like Olivia Wilde's picture. Um, Olivia Wilde's picture is very some, cool. I'm trying to think of the name of it. It's um, Don't Worry don't, Darling. Don't Worry Darling, which is like, which is a great looking kind of thriller sort of um but character, it has like right. very character driven. Right. She's, you know. And, and also movies that appeal to all demographics. I mean, Nope looks absolutely scary. That's Jordan Peele. Uh, Jordan Peele new is, movie, is yeah. a very unique uh, Talent. film creator yeah. who, who's never missed, right? And that and the stuff we saw on Nope looks fantastic too. I so, could go on and on, but there's the, the diversity of stuff that is of movies that are we're getting little scenes from on our screen here at CinemaCon is really encouraging. I, I, okay, so you, you know I'm always the the critic, but I'm going to agree with you. I think the movies really do look fantastic, and then and that by the way, in most years of CinemaCon, it the movies do really look great, but it's such a different 
environment now because we haven't had people going back to the theaters yet. I mean, I think we'll, we'll find out this summer. Right. right. Um, and you didn't have a competition of streaming, which has kind of flattened the whole landscape. So let's talk for a minute about this day and date question, which you said in your remarks to the to the theater exhibitors that you day and date is dead. By day and date, for our listeners, this means that movies go out on uh, in theaters and on streaming at the same time. I, I am not so sure that day and date is dead. Of course, I'm sure you'd like it to be dead. But what what makes you say that? So that wasn't just a pull it from our pocket kind of hortatory statement, right? Uh, last week, the week before CinemaCon, I met with all the major studios in Hollywood. I met with the streaming companies in Hollywood um, at the top levels. And I told them I was going to say this. And nobody contradicted me, right? Uh, so that was, I did my research before I made that statement. Um, and secondly, that statement's being confirmed by the leaders of the studios, both publicly and here at CinemaCon. I mean, think about Warner Brothers. There's a studio that went day and date for an entire year mm -hmm. last year. Mm -hmm. And David Zasloff comes in, studies the business closely for a year before he takes over as CEO of the new Warner's Discovery. Uh, then, you know, told me publicly several times that he doesn't believe in the day and date model. And that he understands how windows drive not just a good release theatrically financially, but then create an aura for that movie that when it goes to HBO Max, it pops even better on HBO Max. And it wasn't, he wasn't just telling me that privately. He went and said it publicly on Tuesday uh, about his understanding of that business model and what he wants to well, do. Well, but isn't so, it not that date and date is dead, but that for some movies, it turns out that it's better to give them an exclusive window in theaters and it's not going to be 90 days anymore. And it's probably not going to be 60 days anymore either, right? What do you think is, go is going to be the best window you're going to get for your exhibitors? Well, you got two different questions in there. It is the case that day and date is dead. But the second part... <laughs> we'll just keep arguing. No, that. because... I, there's a reason why I said it, but okay. But there's continue. a difference between, uh, between day and date and evolving Windows models, right? Okay. All of those were experimented with during the pandemic. Right, exactly. There was just no way to make the same kind of return on movies theatrically during the pandemic as there was before. Mm -hmm. And so there were short windows, there were day and date releases, there were a little bit longer windows. Because we, we needed content so desperately, it was kind of like put on hold whatever the discussions are about the business models. Any way to get movies on screen, please get them on screen, right? And, and Warner Brothers actually did us a favor by putting a lot of content on screen even though they went day and date too long, but we needed their movies. And they had like 40 plus percent market share during the pandemic mm -hmm. because they were actually putting their movies into the market. Yeah, although Those are pandemic models. Although there were very few movies out there, but yes. Right, but those are pandemic models, right? right? Coming out of the pandemic, the discussions suggest two things, uh, both privately and publicly. One is that day and date's dead because it doesn't work as a, as a business model. It, it, there will still be day and date releases for small little pictures trying to get a marketing buzz or Oscars attention or whatever. Mm -hmm. It won't play in very many theaters. So what we said was day and date is dead as a serious business model. Okay. And that means movies that go wide, that they're trying to do real business in theaters in order to then pop in the home. They're not going to use day and date for those anymore. The second part of the statement was that the business models are evolving mm -hmm. because distributors and exhibitors are talking together about where that should go. That's a very different feeling than, than sometimes before the pandemic Absolutely. and during the pandemic yes. when we were fighting like crazy over what this should be. We're now actually partnering on what kind of window makes sense, right. not, not whether there should be a window at all, but what 
kind of which window is, which, it should which you know respectfully should always have been the discussion it was like two people in the standoff you know on two sides of the ring and the pandemic kind of forced everybody to come together and figure it the heck out which is kind of what should have been happening. You know, it's an exciting day when Sharon Waxman <laughs> and John Fithian completely agree on something. We, we, uh, many things, actually, this is why it's a new day. You and I can sit here and agree on this stuff. Um, I mean, look, yes, years ago, NATO called publicly for people to sit down together and discuss windowing models, right? Not, us as a trade association, we can't do that because we represent the entire. Well, industry. exactly. You can't tell but, Regal what but, to do. You no, can't tell but individual exhibitors do. and individual distributors working together on this. We've been calling for this for years. Did the pandemic kick everybody in the butt and say you got to figure this out? Absolutely. Well, it kind of removed the, the the exhibitors all their leverage. I wouldn't say that way. I would say that that both distribution and exhibition realized what the pandemic meant is that we got to work together to find the best business models to grow the so business So here's my question. Everyone. So before the pandemic, please correct me if I'm wrong, it's about, exhibition's about $11 billion a year business? 11.4 okay. domestically I'm, in 2019. Darn close. Okay. 42 Let's billion call globally. Billion. Okay. okay. 42 billion globally. Right now we're at about what? Last year we, we were about 6 billion? I don't know <laughs> what the numbers were last year. I'm going to say uh, six. I think that's what it is. Okay. Do you think that we'll get back to an $11 billion a year business and, and when? Not this year, probably. Absolutely, but... we will get back to it. And the only question is when. And look, you don't you don't flick the lights back on in cinemas and go instantly back to where you were before. No, but day, every, single, right? every single major entertainment company has launched an enormous streaming service in the interim and has put an enormous amount of resources. And I mean, billions and billions of dollars into producing content. That's why I'm asking. Oh, can well, we get all right, let's get into the streaming question. Oh, I, well, let me answer your box office question first. Coming back to the movies, uh, it, momentum builds and it's cumulative. Why? Because people have been out of the habit of going to the movies during the pandemic. Right. They, they start to come back for movies. They see trailers for future movies. They, they remind themselves what the cinema experience was like and that they missed it while they were stuck at home during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And that that momentum accelerates. It doesn't come back overnight. It's not everybody instantly goes back to the cinema as frequently as they did before. But once they start to come back and once they feel that shared social experience and see the trailers, uh, movie going begets movie going and the momentum grows. So are we, are we going to be back in 2022 to 2019 numbers? No. Are we going to have grown substantially from 2021? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And then you go into 2023 and the momentum keeps building, there's a chance we meet 2019 numbers in 20, 2013. I'm sorry, 2023. You know, maybe okay. maybe that growth takes to 2024. We're not sure how, how long it will take, but we're pretty confident that we get there. So your second part of your question was the, was the streaming question. And we've never believed that streaming and theatrical uh, are cannibalistic, right? Um, this, the people who love to watch movies, love to watch movies. And our data shows that the more time, the more types of ways, technology wise, people can see movies in the home. Mm -hmm. They're also our most frequent moviegoers, right? They want to see movies everywhere. So the, the challenge with the streaming wars for us is not the concept of a platform called streaming for home release. We've had home releases of DVDs and VHS and television movies for years. And the consumer's always been able to differentiate what is a theatrical movie from what's, what's a home it? movie, right? Right, And that's where streaming will get to when the war settle down. What do I mean by that? Mm -hmm. Right now we have nine or 10 different streaming services mm -hmm. domestically. That is way too many. 
nobody outside of the industry wants to subscribe to nine or 10 streaming services Probably for like long. five or six, four, or less five, three, like four or five. I mean, I'm not, you know, that's not my side but, of the business, yeah. but it's going to consolidate. Mm -hmm. But what's ha what's happened in the last, you know, few years is that, is that business models driven by wall street's analysis of streaming numbers have been business models that don't make money. They're all about driving subscriptions, right? You drive subscriptions, you drive wall street numbers and eventually, and, but eventually you got to get back to making money mm -hmm. is my point. And mm -hmm. once the, once there's some consolidation in the streaming wars mm -hmm. and they get back to models trying to make money, then they see that you release good movies theatrically with the window. They also then do better I mean, on their streaming my question, service. What's, what's the, what's the appropriate window? And I know oh, I can't answer windows. that. I can't answer that. It's a, because there's no one appropriate answer and B because I'm a trade association executive that can't decide that. Mm -hmm. But they're all over the map. Spider-Man had 88 days, right? Several studios have talked about 45 days for a lot of pictures. Do you think that's clearly, gonna, that can slide in the moment you see a movie's doing well and then, okay, we're going to hold it? I mean, you think that it'll actually be kind of movie to if, movie? If they're nimble enough, well, they they these are really smart people that distribute movies. And they know when they've got something that's going to have yeah. a longer run. Right. Um, you know, some people Usually. say, oh, blockbusters are going to have big windows and independent films are going to have short windows. That's absurd blockbusters are known when they get there independent films <clears throat> excuse me it's been a long week in vegas with all this smoke in the air um <clears throat> trying to get my voice back thank you sharon um you see a movie that takes off and grows or not even just a platform movie but a movie that that opens with a small budget and not a not a big marketing campaign and then it catches on you want that to roll theatrically as long as it possibly can as long as it's drawing people to the cinema and right. then take it to the streaming service. Before, so there's no one size fits all answer. Okay. One, before we wrap up, I did want to ask you what, what happened um, with this Olivia Wilde, Jason Sudeikis thing where she was handed custody papers on stage. This seems like a huge security lapse. Um, it's an embarrassment for Olivia. It's obviously not great for CinemaCon. I mean, but it is what people are talking about right now. Well, I mean, it's unfortunate. And and we, we've we had this show running for 30 plus years. Mm -hmm. This has never happened before. No, no. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and so we have we have reevaluated our protocols and we've already changed right here at the show. We've now got security at the front of the stage. But we've never had an incident like this before because this is an industry show. This isn't Comic-Con, right? These people are invited yeah, to come to the show. Right. They register, they register the occupations, they get their delegate badges. But do you badges. know how, some, it was actually a registered person who handed it. Do you know how yes. that person got that? No, paperwork? no, we don't. Because we, we've we looked at the security footage and we know it was a registered delegate because she had a badge. Right. And we know it was a woman, but we yeah. can't identify her. We don't know who she was. Um, but the, but the, uh, the point is that this is an industry event with people who register and get credentials. So you haven't figured out and have how- And have to get through security outside the Coliseum. That, that person couldn't have been a process server themselves. So, so, so process server must have given it to that person, we, right? we don't know. We don't know how this person got a register badge to get through security to get into the auditorium. So it's, it's uh, we just haven't figured it out. Um, but like I said, it's the first time this has ever happened before. We, we've positioned security outside the Coliseum forever. Yes. Because we only want people in the industry who are registered to get inside. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now we know that even people who were appropriate to register, that now we've got to add security to the front of the Coliseum. Now we're all going to have to take our shoes off every time we come into the Coliseum, John. <laughs> oh, my God.
All right. Well, um, thank you so much for coming on the wrap up and congrats on a great CinemaCon. It's cool to yeah. be back and it's cool to see. Well, all the thank you for out. being here and covering it and coming through the last day because this has been such an exciting week that it's really great that you guys are taking a look at it. Yeah. Thanks for coming. Thanks, sir. And that is it for the latest episode of The Wrap-Up. Thank you to all of our listeners. And remember to please follow or subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us and let us know what you think of the pod. See you next time.